When you are a dog, all things are possible. That the human might give you the hamburger right off her plate. That the human might take you for a walk, even though she took you an hour ago. That the human might go away forever or that she might come home and never leave again. That a bull elk might pop out of the trees at any minute. That those little brown birds that fly low to the ground might not elevate themselves sufficiently this one time that the eviscerated squeaky toy might once again find its voice. The human might stop to pet you on her way down the hall. She might this night invite you into the bed with her. It might not be too smoky tomorrow to go for a hike. And on the hike, there might be blueberry treats and squirrels and a creek still running even this far into the drought. Or if there is no hike, she might ask if you wanna go for a ride in the car she might or might not pass the turnoff to the vet, but if she does, she might drive instead down the road that leads to the lake. Pam Houston writes about nature and the environment the way that Dickens writes about London, or Tolstoy writes military history. Not as an object in and of itself, but as a terrain for understanding the human condition. Houston is a pivotal figure in feminist and environmental writing, and a master of the short story, the novel, and the essay form. From her first acclaimed book of short stories, Cowboys Are My Weakness, across novels such as Contents May Have Shifted and Sighthound, and up to the essays gathered in her recent memoir, Deep Creek, Houston portrays women and men in perilous situations, whether it's from the natural, the social, or the emotional environment. Airlight was honored to publish Houston's Postcards from the West in our first issue. This piece combines photographs taken by Houston of her 120-acre ranch in the Colorado Rockies with occasional essays about the last tumultuous year that included the pandemic, protests for racial justice, wildfires, and the end of the Trump presidency. Pam joined us on the Airlight podcast to talk about Postcards from the West, as well as teaching, writing, the prospects of political activism after Trump, and her new book, Airmail, Letters on Politics, Pandemic, and Place, co-written with Amy Irvine. I started off by asking Pam how Postcards from the West came about. Well, it started because right after Shelter in Place happened, a photographer friend of mine and former writing student who sort of went into photography instead, she asked me to be part of a Facebook project that she was doing where she asked 50 people to uh, take a photograph a day and then write some words about them. And she assigned us the title word. Um, so it was home or it was guilt or it was woman, you know, and then we were to go take a photo and write some words and post it on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I love an assignment. Like I, you know, I, I've always loved an assignment. I am not the kind of writer who likes the total freedom to, you know, I, I like a stay against infinity. So I agreed to be part of that. And that's how I got the first 20. Um, the, the truth is, you know, my work is so image forward anyway, you know, it always starts not necessarily with an image, but it definitely starts with a sensory detail. You know, I notice something in the world, whether it's a sight or a sound or a taste or a texture that, 
and and I bring it to the page and and then I think about all kinds of other things like character and storyline and stuff much later. So I'm always starting with with moments from the concrete physical world anyway. So it's a it's a natural thing for me to do. And then I just started really loving it. I started because I have taken photos forever. I love to take photos. I've never particularly tried to do it professionally. It's always been kind of a thing that I just love. It makes me calm down. You know, it's a thing that really settles me. If I, 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 you know, I used to say, of course, we don't do this anymore, but I used to say, if I've got a roll of film and an hour, I can go from being really anxious to being really calm, you know? And, um, and the other thing I think about the pandemic, you know, I think there's many silver linings for all the, the, the grief and horror about it. And I think one silver lining for me personally is I realized I'm 58 years old. I'm not going to live forever. And really I should just make whatever art I want to (laughs) make. And, and, you know, I shouldn't care very much about the New York times, you know, who's never really liked me anyway. And, and I shouldn't care that much about New York publishing. And I shouldn't, I should stop thinking of myself as on some kind of career trajectory that, that follows some sort of order that somebody else made up, you know? And so in a way, that's what this year was all about for me. I wrote that book Airmail with Amy Irvine, this book of letters. It was published by a tiny press, uh, environmental press in Utah. We basically went on what we called the Armageddon book tour and sold books out of the back of our car, you know, during the wildfires and pandemic spikes. Like I sort of, it just caught up to me that like the whole beauty of having an artistic life is that you can make it up as you go. And you don't have to follow any set of rules. And no one would really ever accuse me of being a rule follower, but I have distanced myself even further from whatever I'm supposed to be doing at this moment in my career. And I'm really excited about doing just about anything, you know, artistically, it's going to have language attached to it because that's what I'm best at. But, um, but I'm loving the idea of collaboration. I'm loving the idea of mixed forms or multimedia. You know, I like I think there's all these ways to play. And at this age, I want I want my art to be I want to be feel like I'm playing. You know, it's serious subject matter, but I want the action to be playful. At the lake, she might throw the stick for you. She might throw the stick for you 100 times. She might throw the stick for you so many times you'll wish only a little bit and with one part of your brain that she would stop. But you can't let her see that because if she wants to keep throwing the stick, you know it is your job to retrieve it. You promise yourself that if she throws the stick a thousand times, you will continue to retrieve it. There is no amount of times she could throw the stick where you would let her down. Later, When you are back home, the human might look at the news and cry, as she does these days so often. She might lay on the couch with you and put her head on your flank. When she closes her eyes, you close your eyes too and tell her with your mind that all things are possible, that the bad guys can't win forever, that even at the vets, you sometimes get cookies, that love, 
and this you are absolutely sure about, has always been stronger than fear. You know, you were talking about the sort of the constraint element of the photography kind of assignment and mm -hmm. writing against constraints and how, but how that ultimately leads to this sort of, it's, it's very, it seems very freeing for you artistically. That's a really interesting dynamic. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what other multimedia projects you do. I mean, yeah. that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, I'm all about that as a teacher. You know, I make my students, I make my pro students write pantoons and villanelles. You know, I'm a big believer in the idea that constraint frees your mind to do all kinds of things, you know? And so, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I love, I, I love, you know, assignments. I, I have a 10 sentence story that I teach, you know, I, I make my students write prose abecedarians, you know, I'm a great believer that, that constraint sets you free or that form sets you free. One thing I have written down that I, that I just wanted that I was, cause I was rereading, um, or reading rereading passages of uh, Deep Creek recently, just to kind of get inspiration for our talk. And one thing that I just kept, like a quote I wrote down, that I guess I'm going to ask you about was the, uh, which I'm sure you've heard, is the the Mary Austin quote, where from um, uh, uh, the Land of Little Rain, where she writes that uh, not the law but the land sets the limits. Which I just, I mean, it's such a beautiful phrase, and it also it's obviously speaks to the environment, but also to environmental writing and writing about nature, but also something about the way that you, it reminds me of the way you were saying that the photographs and these images that sort of of the external world kind of shape the limits and help you guide your writing. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's, there's a question there, but. Well, one thing I would say about that is if you live in the West, you know, you know, it's true. You know, um, you know, Donald Trump can make any law, but this summer the entire West was on fire. You know, we're not going to be able to live here if there's no water. Like, like it, it seems like such a, a, a truism of, of life, you know, at the moment. And those of us who are engaged with the environment and our work all the time, you know, know it like and and feel it. Um, and I guess the way that translates onto art making for me is, as I said, to be kind of land forward or image forward, which for me is often the natural world. You know, I, I often say to my students, I trust the metaphor more than I trust myself. And I think that's what you're saying. You know, I think and, and if, you know, if if I see it and it's something in the natural world that feels profound to me and I don't know why, I'm just going to bring it to the page and trust that it's going to do its work on the page. And maybe I'll figure it out when I put it next to a bunch of other things, or maybe I won't ever, but I, I trust it's essential truth, you know, and that it will translate to the reader, even if I miss it along the way, you know, and that's kind of how I've always written. Does that have something to do with the sort of diary form that you've been working with lately, which also feels very to be based kind of on, just the trust that the, these fragment, fragmented elements are going to add up to something. This yeah, um, I guess. I mean, I, I guess you're right in a way because there was the diary of the fire and then there was my letters with Amy, which was in essence a diary. And also a lot of these photo pieces 
kind of were dated, you know. Um, I think of work as an infinite number of movable parts, infinitely dividable, you know. So I don't ever think linearly about work. You know, if a story turns out linearly on the page for me, it's kind of an accident. I, I mean, it's not a, a total accident. It, it's kind of like, well, that's the way the story suggested itself, you know, as being the most powerful, huh? You know, <laughs> like, like linearity is never default to me. Um, so, so for me, you know, I, I, I feel like kind of a collagist and I feel like I'm taking these pieces, these shiny pieces that I have found and I'm bringing them together and I'm seeing what kind of frisson they make together. And a diary per se is, is a kind of artificial set of containers, right? That give an excuse to bring unlike things together, right? And, and in a way, that's always what I'm looking for when I'm thinking about form in my work. You know, I need an artificial excuse <laughs> that's sort of credible to the reader to bring a lot of things that normally wouldn't be in the same place in the same place. Yeah, it's an artificial form that just makes up it. Like the rule of this artificial form is that this is linear and happening in real life, but it's really, yeah, and that's really interesting. And if you think about Diary of a Fire, what that die I mean, it was a fire and and it had a narrative arc as fires do. Is your house going to burn down or not? <laughs> you know, that's a fairly compelling linear narrative arc. But really the fun I was having in that piece was bringing together those different kinds of language. You know, my language of my experience with the fire plus the INSEE web, government speak, high value resources versus low value resources. How many helicopters did we get today versus the glossary of wildland firefighting terms kind of acting as a translation between those two modes of experiencing the fire, right? You know, that's how I would describe that essay. Not that anybody wants to necessarily hear that, but, but I'm just saying that's what it was for me. For me, it was bringing three totally different modes of communication together on the page around an incident, which was the fire. There's really this clash of scales where it's the human scale of, you know, oh, we don't, you know, this fire is terrible. We don't want it to burn down our, our home and destroy our towns. But then at the macro scale, it's, as you say, this is sort of the earth cleansing itself. This is right. not, it's a very objective, almost good. I mean, it is a good thing for the earth. It's a natural part of the process. But so you have to kind of balance both of those scales at once in your head. Right. Yeah. And it's like in the piece that I wrote for you guys that I just happened to read last night at a reading, you know, when I say, well, yes, the, the entire desert Southwest will be inhabitable in a decade. And won't that be nice for the coyotes and the rattlesnakes? <laughs> we'll, we'll stop running them over, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think about that all the time. Cause I'm kind of, it's, it's, you know, in my bleaker moments, I'm just like, well, it'll be good for the earth. But then it's the unfortunate thing is that it's, you know, I guess we, for better or worse, we kind of have to be on team human to some extent being humans or maybe not. I yeah, I, I go back and forth, <laughs> but yeah, I, it's a hard mind exercise to, uh, to imagine yourself off the planet and have that be the good news. But it's also sort of undeniable that it would be at this point. Resolve. Some days I wonder how many of us have been raised by malignant narcissists. I think the answer is probably a lot. 
It is to you, my fellow survivors, that I am speaking in this essay. I know that when we were too little to do anything about it, to free ourselves of the tyranny, it sucked. But tell me if it's the same for you. When we finally did free ourselves, if we did, and I did, and if you were reading this, I'm guessing you did too, life was glorious, even more glorious, I might argue, though I would be open to be proven wrong, than it was for people who were raised by loving and generous adults. I'm curious, just you brought up your the postcards from the West and um, I was, a lot of that is sort of revisiting. I was noticing some kind of, a lot of biographical material that you covered elsewhere. And so it felt like sort of a, an interesting, but very much reframing it and thinking about it in different, you know, obviously it felt like the, the pandemic as well as the uh, Trump presidency was, I don't know, it made, it seemed like it was making you rethink about your, your, your kind of autobiography or your autobiographical writing. So I'm just curious if, if that would, had, was a conscious consideration, if you were, if you were thinking about that while you were writing it. Yeah, I mean, I guess emotionally my arc through the Trump presidency was from a place of feeling so sad and sorry for myself <laughs> uh, because my abusing father happened to resemble Donald Trump almost precisely. Uh, not that I feel unique in that. I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of women who feel the same way and probably a lot of men too. Um, so my arc was, you know, from over the four years was thinking, you know, what bad luck, <laughs> how could this have happened? How could I have gotten out of my father's house and thrived and then find myself back in it, you know, to, somewhere that I got in, in the essays that I wrote for Air Light, which was, oh, wait, that makes me the perfect warrior in this battle, you know? And of course I had to get there on my own. You know, we all have to wade through self-pity on, you know, on our own. And, and I say that knowing full well, that as like a cisgendered white woman, I, I you know, the pandemic and the Trump presidency, literally affected me so much less than it did so many other kinds of people, though it, it did affect me emotionally a lot, uh, partly because of all the traumas from my childhood. So, but I think all of us have some kind of like formative stories. And for me, you know, it was my father breaking my leg when I was four and it was my determination to get out of his house alive, which really was no small feat. So, so in certain ways, that's the story I'll always be telling. And I kind of wish that weren't true, but, uh, but, but it is. And, um, and so when something, when a world event as big as our teetering on the brink of fascism or COVID-19 happens, you of course revisit your seminal stories to see how they're doing, you know, or how you're doing with them, or, or you have anything new to say about that in light of this cataclysmic event that you're in the middle of. And so I guess that's what I would say about that. 
you know, I try not to police myself too hard about, I mean, I did, God knows when I was a young writer, but I have grown into policing myself less. And, um, and the fact is, you know, I've never written about my father in really political terms until Trump became elected. And then I started right away because I understood it as a political challenge or uh, relationship. You know, I, I saw it in connection to so many other things. I saw my father's tyranny in, collection, in, in connection to so many other kinds of tyranny, and I hadn't really expressed it that way before. So, but, you know, it would be lovely to have a new subject, <laughs> and I hope I will. Uh, you know, I, there's always new subjects, and there's always new metaphors, as we were saying about the earth. And, uh, but it's a nice feeling right now to think, I have no idea what I'm going to write next. Yeah. I mean, I think our most powerful stories are the ones that have the most power to motivate others. And I do think, you know, if you had asked me 20 years ago, are you a writer because of your desire to motivate others towards some kind of political action? I would have said no. <laughs> in the first place, that was highly frowned upon in my graduate program that I went to. Uh, that was not okay. But now I would say absolutely yes. So in a certain way, I'm kind of using the work a different way, or at least a more multiple, in more multiple ways. When I left my parents' house at 17 to go to college at Denison University, I walked out of a dungeon of gaslighting, violence, and fear into a garden of humanism, good works, and critical compassionate thought. If someone had dragged me from Denison back into the hell of my parents' house, I would have chewed off my own forearm to escape, but no one did. And there was not one day in the 40 years between my departure for college and the last election that I didn't remember to be grateful I was free. Now I am back in my childhood home with my 330 million brothers and sisters, which includes you, dear survivor. I bet at first you were amazed to find yourself there. Is it Margaret Atwood who coined the phrase, the unexpected inevitable? You wrote those pieces for... for for Airlight, for us, and um, and then you, I, you've also been, you know, pretty active on social media around the election and everything. I'm just wondering how your, what your take on the aftermath of that is. I think in the months leading up to the election, I mean, considering I have like four other jobs, <laughs> like uh, I, I worked harder than I've ever worked, you know, I mean, Part of that was getting airmail out into the world. Part of it was phone banking. Part of it was like literally taking seriously that Facebook thing that said, find three people that you can convince, you know, like I just, you know, I, I wanted to lay it all on the court, you know, because it was over if we didn't. And I am absolutely sure of that. There was no wobbling through four more years and then seeing where we were. So I worked as hard at that election as I ever had. And when it was over, I kind of crashed and, you know, went through the same thing everyone else went through with the ups and downs of the week, especially that followed and the aftermath of that. 
I feel like for me, I had COVID back in February before, of course, we knew it was COVID and I have quite a few of the lingering effects of it. So for me right now, um, like I want this winter to be a little bit about hibernating and restoring because I sort of feel like, okay, now we put the fire out. <laughs> like we put the fire out. We haven't really done anything good yet. We just put the fire out. And I think the the battles that are ahead, both for um, you know, for racial justice, for women's equality, and biggest for me for the health of the planet are just in their nascent, nascent phases now that we've put the fire out. Like we have a big barn to build and and I want to be ready. <laughs> I want to be ready for that fight. I want to be full strength for that fight. And I'm still active, but I've stepped back just because honestly, I've got, you know, I've got brain fog. I've got, um, you know, a, a galloping heart. I've got neuropathy. So I, and I believe in my own ability to heal. I believe I will get better. Um, but I know I need to lay low for a little bit and rest like deeply rest, which is not a thing I'm good at. And I'm so bad at it. I've never done it. So I'm saying all this sounding very confident about my ability to rest, but I'm not a rester. I'm a doer. So I'm going to try in the deep dark of this COVID winter to rest so that I can come out swinging uh, in the spring. And um, I know that's not exactly the question you asked me, but I feel like, I feel like more people are conscious conscious than ever before. I still think not enough people are conscious. <laughs> and, um, but I think, I believe strongly that the largest untapped power source in this country is the rage of women. And I think if we can harness that and, you know, invite a few good men along for the ride, I think we're unstoppable. And I think this could be a beautiful and profound time of change. I, I, I also think it might get completely railroaded and crash and burn. So we'll see. I, I don't want to make a prediction, but I'm ready. And, and also, you know, there's so many beautiful things happening. I mean, I run this reading series. There's so many amazing writers coming up. There's so many amazing you know, black writers and Asian writers and Latinx writers, like, like there's like, there's so much underground stuff that's coming to the surface, you know, if we step away from Washington DC for a minute, there's so many good things happening. So um, I have a lot of hope. I, I don't really do this without hope. You know, I have a lot of hope, but I also think there's grieving to be done. You know, we have to grieve the dead. I think we have to grieve the fact that our government doesn't give a shit if we live or die. And maybe that was always true. That's something black people have always known. It's something native Americans have always known, but, but it's catching up to us. I just read uh, Carolyn Forche's memoir, What You Have Heard Is True. It's such a glorious book. And I, you know, there's a lot of books I would put on the required reading list for how to go forward, but I would certainly put that one. It's about coming into consciousness in the best way. And, you know, that's something that's totally ongoing for me. You know, I feel like I was a ninny 10 years ago, uh, but I'm working on it. What else is on the, the, the moving forward reading list? 
Well, certainly citizen, you know, Claudia Renke. And I said, I said when that book came out, if everyone had everyone in the country just had to take a very simple test to get their driver's license renewed, you know, like which which tennis player did Claudia Rankine talk about? You know what I mean? Just a very simple test, just so that your eyes fell on it, you know. Uh, it, we'd be in a different country right now if that had been true. Um, gosh, so many books. Uh, those th- those would be my top two on the list, but I think Tommy Orange is there, there, absolutely. Tommy was my student at IA and, you know, of course he's now king of the world and, um, and which, you know, couldn't be a happier thing. I think that book is super important. I really loved Mitchell Jackson's survival math. I got to interview him a few weeks ago. There's uh, a young native writer, Kelly Jo Ford, who just had her book published. It was called Crooked Hallelujah. I mean, you'd have to give me time to really come up with like the ultimate list, but those are some books that I really think um, are the books. Oh, I know, um, Saeed Jones's memoir. Like there's just so many books right now that like, if we want to be educated, if we, the white people want to be educated, it is so available to us. We can get ourselves educated. You know, I choose my words there carefully because it's nobody's job to educate us. It is our job to educate ourselves. This reading series that I've done this year with my organization, Writing by Writers, where I got to interview most of those people I just named, uh, it's been it's been a great education for me. Maybe Terry Tempest Williams' book, Erosion. That that one was very important to me in terms of thinking about climate change and climate collapse. You know, one of the really profound things she says in that book is that we're so used to as Americans, like just getting to the other side of the hard thing. And I see that, you know, on Facebook all the time. We just have to get to the other side of COVID. Well, on the one hand, yeah. On the other hand, things are never going back to the way they were before. And, you know, we, so anyway, what Terry says about climate collapse, writing, of course, before COVID, is, you know, we're so used to getting through it to the other side. But what if all there is, is to go into it? How do we do that? And I think that's a really important and um, hard to grasp but true question to ask ourselves about climate catastrophe. Our passports have become useless documents. Our government is systematically killing us to the tune of more than a thousand people per day and destroying our institutions with a velocity and efficiency even I who saw it coming would not have believed. Our freedoms are being challenged and stolen one by one and we are on the verge of losing the ability to speak out, to make art, even to dream of a better way of life. For me, and I would guess for you, my friend, it is neither childhood nor the president that is the shocker, but the 40 intervening years of freedom. And I am here to tell you that it is us, the children who were raped in the shower, who had their bones broken, who had cigarettes put out on their hands. We are the ones who were born to rise to this moment in which we find ourselves. Well, I guess maybe to kind of spin this slightly different direction, but maybe not that different is you've mentioned teaching and former students a lot in our conversation here. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher myself, so I have some vested interest in it in, in this topic, but I'm just wondering what the role of 
of teaching is for in your writing and your your work and your life in general? Teaching is my favorite thing, and um, like by far, you know, like I would so much rather teach than write. Though I, I like doing both. I teach at the University of California, Davis. I teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I teach in my own programs at Writing by Writers. I teach for Orion Magazine. I teach for the Santa Fe Photography Workshops. I do a ton of teaching. To me, at this stage of my career and my life, it's the most important thing to me by far to try to elevate these young voices, to try to elevate these voices from communities where their voices have not been elevated, particularly, but also, you know, also white voices, young voices who see the world completely differently than we do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's honestly the greatest joy and privilege of my life to be able to work with these young writers and uh, whatever I can do to elevate them, whether it's telling them what's working and what isn't, or whether it's, you know, using some bit of my moderately sized platform to get attention to their work or, um, you know, cheer from the sidelines when they're nominated for the National Book Award, as I did with Tommy Orange. You know, it's, you know, I've always wondered about writing as a valuable way to take up your time on earth. I've always wondered, well, it's kind of strange and self-obsessed and a little bit insular and, you know, but I've never had that question about teaching. When I'm teaching, I know that I'm earning my spot here uh, um, I, and I'm utterly dedicated to it. I do want to ask a little bit about um, your recent book, Airmail, if you just want to, if you can, can talk about how that came into being or. Um, you know, I was still on tour with Deep Creek when COVID hit, you know, so I wasn't really thinking about my next book. I have written several short stories, which I think will probably be my book my next book after now airmail, but, um, Orion magazine wrote to Amy Irvine, who is a writer and an activist. Uh, she lives on the other side of the continental divide from me. I live right up against the East side of the continental divide in Southwestern Colorado. And she lives on the West side and she writes for them a lot. I write for them sometimes, but they asked her to be part of a series they were doing called together apart where they were going to pair up writers and have them write to each other during the pandemic to try to stay connected. And they asked her who she wanted to write with. We had never met. Uh, I had blurbed Desert Cabal, her last book, and she had read Cowboys Are My Weakness when she was a young writer. But And we have friends in common and so forth and worlds in common, but we had never met. Just that morning, she had posted something on Facebook about being in lockdown with her husband and daughter and being grateful it was them. And that makes it sound really cheesy, but it was beautifully worded. And I was really moved by it. And I shared it on Facebook. <laughs> this is one of those weird Facebook stories. I shared it on Facebook. And then five minutes after I did, I thought, oh, wow, that was really personal. I probably shouldn't have shared that. you know. And so I wrote to her on Facebook and I said, hey, it's Pam Houston. I shared this thing. And then I realized it was kind of personal. So if you want, I'll take it down. And she wrote me right back and said, oh, Pam, everything's personal now, isn't it? And I loved that. Like, it just made me love her, like right in that second. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. So because that little exchange had happened, that was the same day Orion wrote to her. And so she said, I want to write to Pam Houston. And so then they wrote me. And so we 
had the assignment of writing 3,500 words to each other. And so we started, we started and, you know, emailed letters back and forth. Well, by the time we got to the 3,500 word mark, which was pretty quick, it was like six letters, I think, um, we were in, <laughs> you know, we were kind of in deep and we were forming a sisterhood. We were, we were talking each other out of despair. We were talking each other into action. We were talking about getting Mongolian war horses and riding into battle together. Um, and it just seemed impossible not to keep riding. Uh, it was the one place where we felt like we could really have some clarity about what was happening. And, you know, these were not like tossed off emails. These were letters. I mean, we did email them. People always want to know, did you send them by the mail? Well, if we had sent them by the mail, they'd still be out there. But, but we, uh, we wrote them in documents. And plus, you know, we were kind of having, we had to look this up. We had to look up what the female version of a bromance was. It's a womance. So we were having a womance. We didn't exactly know that, but we were having a womance and we were, you know, we were writing, you know, pretty consciously trying to impress each other. So the letters were things, they were like made things, you know, they weren't like, I made this soup for dinner and not much is going on here. What's new at your house? So we just kept going. And, um, and by the time we got to about 35,000 words, so 10 times that many, by the time we got to 35,000 words, it was the end of May. And we were like, this seems like it might be something. I think this is something, you know, maybe we should try to publish this and, and maybe we should try to publish it before the election, because it was a lot about activism and a lot about where we found ourselves and a lot about like harnessing this untapped power of women to to create some kind of noise and action and possibly take over the country. <laughs> so, um, so she had a good experience with Tory House Press um, and with Desert Cabal. They were a small press that could maybe do it in a hurry because we thought, well, we want it to come out before the election and it was already May. So New York was out of the question, probably out of the question anyway, given their interest level in letters between two Western women writers. So, so Tory House Press said yes, right off the bat, you know, we did two months of editing in literally 10 days by sending it back and forth and back and forth. Like it would be like, okay, I'll have it for you by 2am. If you can get it back to me by nine, you know, like that. And, um, and it was just, it was a rush and um, it was a rush in every sense. It was a rush job, but it was also kind of an emotional rush. And uh, and, you know, that's how Airmail was born. We had a, you know, the Tory House Press is all women. We had a, a, a woman artist made the cover, the beautiful cover with crows carrying letters across the Continental Divide. Ravens. <laughs> I always call them crows. And Amy's like, they're ravens. Ravens. Um, and uh, that's my New Jersey. That's my New Jersey coming out there for a minute. Anyway, uh, so it was just a wonderful experience. And, and we, we are just, you know, we made a friendship out of words, out of letters, you know, and we had, we never met until the book was already in press. We met in Santa Fe in August, uh, cause we both happened to have to be there the same week. And so we finally met and we just sat up all night outside 10 feet apart and talked, you know, until two or three in the morning. And so just that, like, again, COVID silver linings. It's a happy COVID story. Um, it was crazy that we hadn't met, but Amy likes to say, you know, 
the universe was saving it <laughs> for this year when we really needed it. I mean, it's a really amazing achievement and an amazing book. And yeah, I mean, an amazing, an amazing way to spend COVID. It's much better than the, uh, than the 500 hours of animal crossing version yeah. of COVID. <laughs> and also it was so much fun when the book came out because, you know, women who would come to these outdoor socially distanced masked readings as we got into fall, you know, so often it was snowing or else it was raining ash down on our books as we read from the fires. It really was among the craziest things, this book tour. And, um, you know, they would buy, like, they wouldn't buy a book. They would buy like 15 books for all their sisters and nieces, mm -hmm. or they would buy books for everybody in their book club. And on fate, because of the Facebook world and because it was so hard to get books from place to place with COVID, you know, they'd be like, can I meet you on the top of Lizard Head Pass? Can you bring me 12 books? <laughs> so we were like making these book drug deals all over yeah, the web. The black market of the book. <laughs> I'll meet you on the corner of, you know, State and Maine and Durango. <laughs> you know, we really did. We we did it a lot. Uh, you know, it, it, it really felt like, I mean, Amy always says it felt like the women of the French resistance, you know, baking instructions into baguettes and then taking them <laughs> bicycles. It had that feel. It was really fun. It is easy to gaslight a child, shockingly easy to gaslight a country. But I got out, and so did you, my fellow traveler. And what we understand all the way down to our bones is that the cruelty is and always has been the point. Surviving our families of origin took all our ingenuity. It offered us a glimpse of our own power and we knew we were unstoppable. That is why you and I are so important to this battle. We have learned to think one step ahead of the malignant narcissist and we'll chew off our own arm to get out of his trap. We have arrived at the moment of the unexpected inevitable and this time we have each other. Come, let's rise together and reveal all that we have learned.